Today's reading will be from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Brian. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. If you are new here today, um, extend a special welcome to you. My name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here uh, at Redemption. We're going to be in Ephesians 1 again uh, today uh, if you want to turn there. But uh, we're going to have a few other things that we're going to uh, work through and do before we actually get to uh, this morning's message. Uh, first of all, if you have your uh, March news, I just want to draw your attention to one other thing. Um, we started doing these uh, Theology Thursdays once a month, not necessarily every month, but uh, so far they've been once a month. And uh, last Thursday, just a few days ago, we had the one on Gospel and Marketplace. And i got to tell you something, it, it was absolutely fantastic. And I can say that because I didn't lead it. I attended it, uh, and it was just, it was really good. It's one of the best things that uh, I think we've ever done. Uh, and those of you that were here responded uh, really well to it. We're going to have another Theology Thursday, uh, March 22nd. We have Terry and Roxanne Thorstadt coming in, who are the principals of the Journeys Counseling Center in Tempe, uh, that works almost primarily with um, children, adolescents, and parents uh, through counseling issues. And they're going to come in uh, one night and really uh, just talk about some of the major parenting issues that we know many of you uh, are facing, especially with, with younger children. And uh, so we would love to uh, have you respond to that and come to that. That's also sort of helping us to uh, prepare for the fact that we're going to be doing a, a six-week, midweek series in April and May uh, on parenting as well. So we're kind of packaging all of that uh, together. So just a, a reminder of that, too. And if you need child care for that, um, which if you're coming to that, my guess is you're going to need child care for it, um, uh, you can RSVP to let us know. Also, we have the new... Um, we have the new uh, uh, Lent uh, bookmarks with the, the correct uh, email address on them. We mentioned that last week, and we had the wrong email address on that. I think everything was going to Alhambra or something. I don't know what happened with that. But uh, anyway, so we have those uh, for you. Uh, one other thing before we get into Ephesians. Uh, if you remember in January, 
we didn't do any all of life interviews at all, and, and so now we're going to double up on them, and we're going to do uh, a couple every, well, this Sunday we're going to do a couple anyway. Um, I want to invite a friend of mine, Sally Henry, up, if, if, um, if uh, you would welcome her. I know you don't know who she is, but welcome her. Anyway. Hi, Sally. Hi. So one of the things we talk about at Redemption, all the Redemptions talk about this, uh, is the importance of stewarding our resources and how to do that well. And, and of course, that includes our money, but it includes our time and our talents and, and our energy. All, everything uh, about us uh, is a project and a process of stewardship. Uh, one of the areas, though, of course, is money. And, and Sally is the marketing director for something called the Arizona uh, Christian School Tuition Organization. That's a lot to say. That's longer than my sermon, believe it or not. But, um, and, and what she wants to help us talk about, I wanted to, to talk about this idea of, uh, the state of Arizona does something pretty cool. They have something called the Arizona uh, Tax Credit. Uh, it's not a tax deduction. It is a dollar-for-dollar dollar tax credit. Uh, there are certain places that you can actually donate your money and you can take that as a deduction on your tax bill in Arizona and get all of your money back. In other words, it's a way that Arizona is allowing us to direct some of our tax dollars. Would you say that that's uh, close to right? Close to right. Close to right. Okay. See, this is why I wanted Sally to come up here because she is an expert in, in all of this. She works for this Christian school tuition organization, that is true, so she does, does have a dog in, in the race, but she's not here to specifically and necessarily promote that. She's here to help us to understand this tax credit process. So it's, uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about you, your married, your family, and, and okay. all that, where you go to church. Okay. You can even say that out loud. I can okay. say that yeah. out loud. Uh -huh. Okay. Sure. Um, I'm a native to Arizona. I'm married. I have three kids. One, uh, my oldest daughter is married to a Marine and lives in Texas. Then my middle daughter um, is a freshman at NAU, and then my son is a junior. Um, currently, my husband just recently got a job in Midland, Texas. So he's living there. I'm living here eventually to follow, but trying to figure out how all that's going to transpire. Um, I go to church at Compass Christian Church in Chandler, and I'm just an East Valley girl. Yeah, cool. Well, we're glad you're here. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved with... Um, Arizona Christian School Tuition Organization and what the tax credits mean. Okay. Um, I got involved with ACSTO. We just shorten it because it is a mouthful. Okay. Um, back in 2013, um, as a parent, I was been blessed for many years to help um, gain scholarships, obviously, through that organization to help um, afford a Christian education for my own children. But I love the organization, and um, in 2013, I was able to become a part of their organization and be employed there. But through um, being part of there, our biggest, one of our biggest things at ACSTO is we want people to understand all the tax credit programs. Um, obviously, we want people to understand how they can help Christian education be affordable, but the state of Arizona, as Frank said, allows us the opportunity to basically give without it costing us more. And to me, it's good stewardship. If you've got $4,000 in tax liability that you actually can give away to things that you believe in and you know exactly where it's going, then why not give it away? So we want to make sure that people understand what all those opportunities are. So some of the opportunities would include even public schools, right? So Correct. it's not just Christian private schools. There's a tax Correct. credit for Arizona public schools? There's a tax credit for Arizona public schools. You can donate as married couple 400 up to $400 or 200 single, and it goes towards extracurricular activities. Um, for years, I've helped offset my niece's 
um, different um, expenses for their public school, whether it be soccer, um, travel, some trips they had in high school. So it is, you know, just another way to help. Okay, so also foster care and adoption yes. has a way of doing this. And then foster care, that's actually, there was a new tax credit law that came out in 2016. So foster care, you can donate to a foster care program, $1,000 for married, $500 to if you're single, and then there's the charitable organization tax credit, which once upon a time was known as the working poor tax credit. And one of um, uh, the ministry, um, alongside ministry, for instance, is one of the organizations that is part of the charitable organization. Actually, there's like 800 organizations that qualify under the charitable organization. Yeah, so tax where credit. Jackie and I do this, uh, this tax credit thing is with alongside ministries. That's, that's where we uh, give our money. So, sorry. Um, anyway, um, uh, so it, you uh, have a table in the back, and you have a you have a, a um, Amy's with you. She's yep. the assistant executive director. She's here somewhere. She's, She's in the back. assistant dir executive <laughs> yeah, director. She, yeah. So you can answer some questions. Correct. You have a list of different um, uh, ways that you can do this as well. Yep, and, we and have a handout you for you that lists all the different tax credits you can take advantage of, and then the website that you can go to to find out the list of the organizations. Uh, we also have some sample tax forms back there that actually show how it changes your taxes when you actually give a tax credit. Um, because again, a lot of people, Frank and I talked about this, think this is way too good to be true. It is true, it is legal, and, and the government good. says we can do it. <laughs> so why not do it? And it's really good. And it is really good. And, and you've, uh, you've never heard or uh, understood anybody, th this isn't gonna create a red flag. No. You're not gonna get audited no. because you do this. No. I've been doing it for 15 years, and I've been audited yeah. once, but it certainly wasn't for tax credits. Yeah. So. so, all right. Well, good. And the other nice thing is because there's all these tax credits, you can actually give more to one. So it's all up to what your liability is. So if your liability is 500, you can donate 500. If your liability is 4,000, you can donate up to 4,000. So you can donate to as many as you have the tax liability to do so. Yeah. Now, I know some of you in the congregation are already doing this, but I just wanted to make everybody else aware that if you have tax, a tax liability of any sort, this is one of the things that uh, you can do to kind of direct some of your money. So, Sally, thank you very much thank for you. being here today. You're going to be here all day. Yes. So you're going to find out how hard pastors work one day a week. All righty, then. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thank you, Sally. Appreciate it. All right, um, you heard Brian read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. We've been in uh, this section of scripture now. This is our sixth week. It's our, it's our last week. It's the last of, of what we know of uh, Paul's barakah. Uh, a barakah is an extended Hebrew pronouncing of praise and celebration. Uh, last week when Cody uh, spoke about these 12 verses... Uh, he said this line, and, and it, it, just, it just resonated with me. He said, we need to understand that when Paul writes these verses, he is not primarily being a theologian or a teacher or a preacher. Although, the, the, although these things are theological and they can be preached and they can be taught, that's not primarily what Paul is doing here. He, he is writing these primarily as a worshiper. He is somebody who is on his knees before God and thanking God for these ways that God has blessed us. And if there is an, a message of application in these 12 verses, I would argue that the, the application comes from this. Uh, you and I are to live lives of joy and gratitude 
and to live as a blessing to God and to others because of the many ways, the myriad ways that God has already blessed us in and through Jesus Christ. You can go through these 12 verses and you can actually find 23 different ways that God has blessed us in and through Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that should be inspiration enough for us to be able to live uh, this life. A couple weeks ago, um, we talked about sort of this house analogy, which I think helps us as well with these 12 verses. If you think of the 12 verses, it's all one sentence in the Greek. We split it up into five sentences in the ESV Bible. But uh, if you think of the 12 verses as a house... And remember that, that it's a fully contained unit, these 12 verses, but inside that house are various rooms that you can go in and check out and inspect and, and learn from. Um, uh, it's it's kind of like uh, one of those reality shows where people are going in and, and renovating and flipping houses. And you look at it on the outside, then you go on uh, the inside. Uh, each verse that we look at, each section that we've looked at over the last six weeks is a room in that house, but we cannot forget that it's part of a bigger house. It's part of this barakah. So before we get into the last two verses today, 13 and 14, I want to just talk a few more minutes about the house, about the 12 verses in totality. And I have found, personally, just in conversations over the last 20 or 30 years, that one of the challenges of this section of Scripture, these 12 verses, um, is that historically, these verses end up being things that Christians will argue about rather than things that we will praise God for. We, we, we want to argue. Uh, one of the words, of course, that comes up all the time in chapter 2, we'll spend more time actually unpacking uh, the notion of election or predestination and, and talking about it. But the word predestination is used twice in these 12 verses. And, and, and man, people get really exercised about this on both sides of, of the debate. And, and we, we tend to want to use shutdown comments. We don't, we don't want to truly engage and praise. We, 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 we want to prove that we're right and, and that the other person is wrong. There's a, there's a saying, a, a quote um, that I heard recently. Uh, try to understand predestination and you might lose your mind. Try to explain it away and you might lose your soul. And, and that's, kind of, that's kind of the approach that we're taking uh, toward it. It's, it's like um, you, might, you might not be saved if you don't believe in predestination. Well, if you do pre believe in predestination, then you, possibly, you can't possibly be, be saved. And we end up in these, these ridiculous mic drop sort of arguments over some of these things. I'm not saying we shouldn't discuss them. But man, we really, we really like to draw lines in the sand on this stuff. And I'm talking about Christians who are doing this. We should be thanking and not necessarily drawing lines in the sand. Our, our call is to praise because these verses remind us that in Christ, a new era has broken into the world. And it's an era of unity. It's an era of reconciliation. It's an era of forgiveness. And it's an era of restoration. It's not that those things did not uh, exist in the Old Testament. But now, in Christ, these things are finished. I would argue the three greatest words Jesus ever said 
were the last words he said on the cross when he said, it is finished. It's over. It's done. Nothing else to be done. Ephesians reminds us that the old has passed away and that the new has been ushered in. Uh, Ephesians proclaims that you and I are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. What does that mean? Uh, to be in Adam means that we, we find our identity in our fallen human nature. We find our identity in, in the things that the world tries to construct for us or that we try to construct for ourselves. We find our identity in our sin. We find our identity in our addictions. We find our identity in our brokenness. But no longer, because of Christ, do we find our identity in those things. Or, or do we have to find our identity in those things? We have our identity in Christ, in, in the righteousness and the holiness that he imputes to us through the cross and the resurrection. We are, we are in Christ, and, and God, the Father, sees us as holy uh, four weeks ago, Cody said this during his sermon. It's, it's a quote from Matt, Matt Smethurst. The gospel of Jesus Christ turns the courtroom proceedings in heaven from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. I love that imagery. I would argue, though, that one of the challenges that we have is that many of us still treat theology, uh, the theology of Christ, as a criminal trial. And we're, we're prosecuting that criminal trial here on earth, as a matter of fact. And we're forgetting that, that the trial really is over. Jesus has already played the role of our advocate and our defense attorney. Uh, Satan has been the prosecuting attorney. And God the Father has declared us innocent of all charges because of the finished work of Christ. Um, uh, even though the victory is assured, we realize, however, that the game is not over, and we still have to live in this world, and it's hard. That, that's the tension that we live in. Uh, God has declared us innocent, but we're still living in this world. We know the victory is sure. We are guaranteed of this victory, but we still live with the tension of, of, of the flesh fighting the spirit and, and with the, the spirit of this world. Uh, challenging us. And, and here's the irony about Satan. Satan knows he's defeated. He knows it's over. In fact, I would, uh, I would mention that he, he knew it from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He, he knows it's over, but he's still trying. He's still out there trying. Have you noticed that? He, he's still, he's still uh, sidling up beside us as our friend and our confidant and our counselor, whispering in our ears, getting us to doubt, he knows us, he knows how to play us, and so he throws us these little temptations, these little nuggets. Now, we're responsible for our sin. We're, we're the ones that ultimately make the decision, but he knows how to get at us. He knows how to place that right thing in our minds uh, before our eyes. He, he knows how to caress our flesh in a way that draws us into the sin and away from God. And that is his goal. Even though he knows he's defeated, that's his goal is to draw us away. And yet, and yet, think about this. The minute we give in, the second we give in to Satan's temptation and we engage that sin, what does Satan start to do? He immediately begins to accuse us. He immediately begins to tell us how awful we are. He immediately begins to lay on the guilt. 
First he eggs us on, and then he shames us and pours on the guilt. He's kind of a jerk in that way. He plays both ends. And that's the challenge that we have, and that's why we have to stand firm in our identity in Christ. That's why we, we beg for God to fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we can fight this battle every day. Later in Ephesians, Paul will say, put on the armor of God. And the verb there, put on, actually has this continuous sense in it. It's not that you put on the armor of God and then you take it off and then you put it on for the next battle. It's put on the armor of God and continue to put on the armor of God. Every single day, every hour, every moment, we are putting on the armor of God. God, with Jesus interceding for us, looks at us as holy and righteous because of the finished work of his son. And we're adopted instead of indicted. We are adopted instead of indicted. So here's our last room that we're looking at today, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's a lot there. I've got like 25 minutes. And so uh, really I think there are three things that I want to kind of press into and, and that I find are keys to this, uh, these two verses. That would be heard the word of truth, sealed, and until we acquire possession of it. So heard the word of truth. Let's talk for a minute about truth. Again, that could be a really long conversation. Uh, and and we, we often narrow in on, on different aspects of truth. Here's where I want to go today. When I, was, when I was at Arizona State University working on my master's in communication theory, I found out very quickly in the classes that you were not allowed to talk about truth with a capital T, that you could not make any sort of absolute truth claims. And I was told flat out on several different occasions, there is no such thing as absolute truth. And, and, and I used to look and say, I, I'm sorry, that kind of sounds like an absolute truth claim to me, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Isn't that absolute? You're saying absolutely no truth? That's an absolute truth. And Yeah, okay, you know. Uh, but no, truth is contextually bound, and what's true for this person isn't true for that person. You can't make these absolute truth claims. Um, and yet, we are constantly pursuing truth, aren't we? Aren't we interested in truth? Aren't we wondering what is true and what isn't true? Uh, don't we think that truth is always going to make things better, especially if it's our truth? But we, ask tr we ask these questions. Is truth even knowable? What is truth? Is it just a set of facts? What part does emotion play in it? Can we find truth if we set out to find it? And what truth are we looking for anyway? Here's one. Is all truth good, usable, and worthwhile? Is all truth good, usable, and worthwhile? A book I finished reading recently by Seth Davidovitz called Everybody Lies. It's a book about uh, big data and automation and technology. And kind of almost in passing in one point in the book, he mentions this. He says, through our advances in technology, 
we are closer than most people seem to realize to being able to know everybody's private thoughts. We're closer to that day when that will happen. I remember 20 years ago, somebody first floated this idea when I was in graduate school at Fuller, and I thought, there's no way. There's no way that's ever going to happen. He, he thinks we're closer than we might think. Well, think about that. That's truth, isn't it? Knowing what everybody's thoughts are. Isn't that a form of truth? Is that going to be a helpful truth? Neil Brennan, in an essay about six months ago, he wrote, you know how for years many of us have been worried about Big Brother kind of looking over our shoulder? He says, now we've got millions and millions of little brothers and sisters looking over our shoulder, and soon they're going to know our truths. That, is that really where we want to go? How about your spouse, you know? How's that going to work in your marriage? You know, guys, she asks you, what are you thinking? <laughs> Nothing. What are you really thinking? <laughs> I, I hate to do this to you. I know I get razzed about this all the time. I have a 20th century pop culture illustration. I'm sorry about that. Um, how many of you are old enough to remember the show Gilligan's Island? Remember that show? Wonderful acting. Some of the best acting I've ever seen in my life. How many of you remember that episode where the professor figured out how all, the, all seven people on the island could read each other's minds? Remember that episode? How did that turn out for everybody? They all ended up hating each other. Well, anyway. Deepak Chopra. Uh, during a debate with a theologian, and, and uh, somebody else was in on the debate too, but it was on Nightline, this is years ago, and, and, and he made this statement, I've never quite understood it. He said, he said, I am devoting my life to pursuing the truth, but I will deny the fact that anybody can ever find it. Whoa! It just blew my mind. So he's devoting his life to this thing that he says can't even be accomplished. It's just fascinating to me. Okay, so here you go. According to Scripture, what is the truth? It's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the truth. Oh, boy, we just split everything up in here, didn't we? John 14, 6, the last night before Jesus is betrayed and goes on trial. And, and, and he says, I am the way the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I'm a way, but there are many ways, contextually bound, depending on who you are. He doesn't say, I'm a truth, contextually bound, depending on who you are, and there are many other truths. He doesn't say, I am a life, and there are many other ways that you can find life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Jesus is famous for his seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And sometimes I hear this, well, that's a circular argument. That's a self-confirming argument. Okay, I suppose so. I get it. I get it. Here's one of the things that we have to wrestle with, though, when we come to Jesus. If we receive Jesus, 
we also have to receive his words, and we have to receive his claims. If you believe in Jesus, you also have to believe Jesus. You can't have it both ways. I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe everything he says. Okay, okay, that, that, again, logically, that just doesn't make any sense. I don't even know what to do with that. How, how about this? I've been wrestling with this for the last couple of years. Uh, the number of people in our culture today who absolutely insist on constructing their own identity. Nobody has any right to uh, tag me with any adjectives or pronouns or whatever it is. I construct my own identity. I am in charge of who I am. You can't put me into any category. You can't, you can't talk about who I am without my approval. I am the only one who constructs my identity. But many of those same people don't allow Jesus to construct his own identity. Oh, no, Jesus isn't the truth. Jesus isn't the life. Well, wait a minute. Again, you can't have it both ways. We like to have it both ways, don't we? We do. Jesus is the truth. And though we can't know it perfectly, this side of total and complete restoration and redemption, he is the truth. And, and, and therefore, when we're pursuing truth, certainly we should be pursuing uh, Jesus. Uh, about the fact that we don't see it perfectly yet, I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Let me just read you the, the passage so that you have the context. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at all at, at, at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, sometimes translated as we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known." He's saying we live in this tension of knowing what the truth is, but not seeing it perfectly and not understanding it perfectly. And that's some of our challenge uh, that, we, that we live with today. We have a foreshadowing of what it really is going to be like, a foreshadowing. And we've been given some insight, which is really helpful, but we still just know in part, or as Paul says, partially. And so we do keep searching. Our call is to keep digging and to keep pursuing and to keep looking and to, and, and, to and, to, and to search. And I know that so often our searching feels like just wandering, just wandering around. And really what God is calling us to in that is, is more than just wandering. It's divine, holy waiting. It's waiting expectantly on what he's going to do. And he's going to do things for us in the short term, this side of heaven, 
But ultimately, what we're waiting for is what is going to be finished and complete on the day of the Lord when Jesus comes again. And so we pray. And here you go. We listen when we pray. We don't just talk. Sometime, if you've never done this, just do the exercise of praying without saying anything for like a minute. And just let the Spirit wash over you and see what happens. And, and if you don't feel any sort of movement of the Spirit, at least you had one minute of silence and peace and rest in your life. How bad could that be? But try praying without doing all the talking. And when we pray, uh, do like David did in Psalm 139 and ask God to search us and reveal us to us. That's a scary prayer, isn't it? God, you know me better than I know myself. Now reveal me to me so that I can then give that back to you and let you work on that with me. Uh, read and study the scriptures. And, and the Holy Spirit will guide us. And, and by the way, don't, don't try to read. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start reading the Bible finally. And I'm going to start in Leviticus. Don't, you don't do that, okay? Is it serious? I mean, even, even like a lot of, some of the New Testament stuff that seems pretty straightforward can be a challenge. Here's, here's what I would, I would say, though. Don't do it for a day or a week. Do it for a while. You have to exercise these muscles, but also pray that the Holy Spirit will join you and guide you as you read the text because he's the great illuminator. Here you go from 1 Corinthians again. Chapter 2, come on, man, there we go. Uh, Paul writes this, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Work at reading the Bible, but invite the spirit in to illuminate this with you and for you. Here's something else that we should do in this pursuit of truth. Purposefully, diligently seek gospel-centered relationships. And yes, that means we're going to drink a lot of coffee. Christian crack. <laughs> going to meet with people like Ann Wheeler and, and Joe Ponce and Dave and Greg. Sometimes Jackie, when she's available. <laughs> we serve. We serve. You heard Aslan and Tyler uh, this morning talking about serving. Uh, serving is a great way to discover and learn and to build relationships. And we obey. We obey. Here you go. It's easy to obey when we feel like it and we agree with it and it'll benefit us in some way we know. Here you go. We obey 
even when we don't feel like it. And then we get to watch God work incredibly in our lives when that happens. Some of the, some of the most magnificent ways that God will work in our lives is, is when we, we follow him even though we don't feel like it and it's going to be hard, and then we watch him just do amazing things. Uh, Thursday night, uh, one of the things that Aaron Klusman said was this, and I just latched on to this. Uh, a blessed life is not in winning or losing, but in seeing God work in our lives in both. That's what a blessed life is, is watching God work in every one of our circumstances. And, and, and through all of this, someday when Christ comes again, that sense of eternity, perfection, and intimacy that all humans have planted in their hearts will come to full fruition for those who know Jesus. There is capital T truth. And it is good and perfect and holy, and it should be pursued, and it's Jesus. And then Paul, in this passage, he talks about how we're sealed. What does it mean to be sealed? Our salvation, our redemption, our inheritance, they're all sealed. Uh, This language was especially important during, during the Roman Empire, which is the context in which Paul is writing. Um, the, the, Caesar had a royal seal that he would seal documents or, or proclamations or letters or whatever. You know, you melt the wax and you, and you seal it with the signet ring, uh, that sort of thing. And, and the seal of the Roman emperor, the seal of the Roman government was supposedly inviolate, inviolate. Couldn't break that seal uh, under potential penalty of death if you broke that seal. You know, Jesus' tomb was sealed, and he broke that seal. That was one of the great scandals of his resurrection. You ever had that feeling where you get a letter that's addressed to you and somebody else has opened it? (laughs) That feeling of violation, right? Okay. Okay. Here you go. Here's one of Satan's greatest lies to us. He tells us that our, via, our, our salvation can be unsealed, that our sa- salvation can be violated in some way. Jesus says once we're in Christ, we're in Christ forever. That's it. It's over. It's done. It is finished. We're sealed. Jesus can't be sealed because he's the great sealer. Our position and status as inheritors of internal, eternal life in, in heaven is preserved. And it's protected against any potential violation. We're going to talk more about that in chapter 4. As Christians, we bear the royalist of royal seals by the emperor of emperors. We bear the seal of the spirit of Jesus. God, is, God has placed his stamp of joyful ownership on us. And as a result, we're as guaranteed of heaven as the saints who are already there. You understand that? That's our guarantee. And and, and we're pronounced innocent. And God has said all along that Satan's going to be destroyed. Romans 16, 19. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Again, that's... That's reminiscent of Genesis 3.15. After the fall, after the original sin, God comes and pronounces these curses, and he starts with Satan. He starts with the adversary, and one of the things he says to the adversary is, your offspring is going is to bruise the heel 
of the offspring of the woman, but her offspring, Jesus, is going to crush your head. That's, that's the first moment in the Bible, right after original sin, that we have an inclination of the Messiah, of the gospel, of the good news. Scholars call it the proto-euangelion, the first gospel message in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Satan is going to be destroyed. And, and, and we proclaim that truth. And when the gospel is proclaimed and we hear it and we're sealed, we have this inheritance. And what is the inheritance? Well, if you want to know more about the inheritance, listen to, listen to uh, Cody's last two sermons in the last four weeks because he unpacks that a lot. But Max Turner describes it this way, very similarly. The final and total redemption and restoration of the world by God when Jesus comes again to usher in the new Jerusalem. See Revelation 21 and 22. We have the king in the kingdom. And then Paul wraps this up with these words, until we acquire possession of it. See, there he's reminding us that we still have stuff to do. It, the victory is sure, but we're still playing the game. We're still fighting the battle. And a lot of what Scripture helps us with is to understand how to negotiate that, uh, that we need the wisdom of God, we need the protection of God, we need the filling of the Spirit, we need the armor of God, we need God's Word. The truth is, we still have work to do. The work is a result of our salvation, and, and, and we're going to have trials and tribulations to endure, temptations to endure, and, and neighbors to love. You don't have to turn there, but let me just remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew 22. Uh, the rabbis used to sit around, all the professional religious people, and, and they would ask questions like, what is truth, and what's the greatest commandment, and what do you think is most important to Yahweh? And, and so they were doing that when they came to Jesus and asked him this question. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they'd gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love your Lord the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Uh, Jesus is saying, if you want to sum up everything that's taught in the Old Testament, love God and love your neighbor. <laughs> that's one way of summing it up. Nice little chariot bumper sticker for their times, you know. Uh, it's interesting. He says, he says, here's the work that God is calling us to. Love God and love your neighbor. That's the work he's calling us to. If you're God's people, if you're sealed with him, if you've been called by him, this is your work, to love God and to love others. Now, let me just tell you something. I've heard this taught a number of different times where the person teaching it, the thing that they go after is this idea of Love your neighbor as yourself? Okay, the first thing you have to do before you can love God and love your neighbor is you have to learn how to love yourself. That is a complete destruction of that text. Every place in the Bible that talks about loving self and self-love, 
the idea, the implication is that we already know how to love ourselves. We don't need instruction on how to love ourselves. We naturally love ourselves. We're selfish. We're self-centered. We're self-serving. We don't need any instruction on how to love ourselves. Jesus is using the fact that we know how to serve ourselves, we know how to love ourselves, we know how to take care of ourselves, we know how to benefit ourselves, to turn that outward and move outward so that we can do that for others. And that by doing that, that's one way that we actually love and serve God. Don't focus in on the self-love. You already love yourself. I love myself so much, it hurts sometimes. (laughs) We've got that figured out. Turn it outward. That's what God calls us to do. Think about, think about the values of Redemption Church. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused. The gospel turns us outward. Here's, here's value number five. There are no little places and no little people. We'll go where it takes. Where, where, wherever God takes us, we'll go and do whatever it takes. And so until we acquire possession of it, we are called to love God and love people. Jesus has sealed us for that, so we can do that. It's by his power and not ours. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for, we thank you for Ephesians chapter 1, verses, verses 3 through 14 and what they, what they mean. We're so thankful that you filled, you filled Paul with your Holy Spirit so that we might know what it is to be grateful and thankful and, and have joy about So God, help us to lean into that and to press into that. Remind us that we are sealed, that we are yours forever. God, let that guide us and lead us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.